Our text this morning comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. We'll continue our exposition through the book of Hebrews. And this time we'll read from chapter 1, verse 5, to chapter 2, verse 9. Hebrews 1, verse 5, through chapter 2, verse 9. Thus says the word of God. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, will all be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son? And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou, shall thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail." But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand, until I make thy enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Therefore, we ought to give them more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders, and with the diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come. Wherefore we speak, but one in a certain place testifying, say, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou, that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with the glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, 
crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. This far, the reading of God's word. And now in preparation for the Lord's Supper next week, let's read from the form of the administration of the Lord's Supper that can be found at the back of the Psalter, pages 136 and 137. We'll read only the first part of the form. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, attend to the words of the institution of the Holy Supper of our Lord Jesus Christ, as they are received by the Holy Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three to 29 For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered upon, unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had give, given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This doing remembers of me. And after the same manner also he took the cup, and he had supper, saying, This cup is the new testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it and remembers of me. For as often as ye drink as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the blood and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. That we may now celebrate the Lord's Supper of the Lord to our comfort, it is above all things necessary, first, rightly to examine ourselves, secondly, to direct it to that end for which Christ hath ordained and instituted the same, namely, to his remembrance. The true examination of ourselves consists of these three parts. First, that everyone consider by himself his sins and the curse due to him for them, to that end that he might abhor and, uh, and humble himself before God, considering the wrath of God against sin is so great that rather than it should go unpunished, he hath punished the same in his beloved Son, Jesus Christ, with the bitter and shameful death of the cross. Secondly, that everyone examine his own heart, whether he doth believe this faithful promise of God that all sins are forgiven him only for the sake of the passion and death of Jesus Christ, and that the perfect righteousness of Christ is imputed and freely given him and his, as his own, yea, so perfectly as if he had satisfied in his own person for all his sins and fulfilled all Righteousness. Thirdly, that everyone examine his own conscience, whether he purposed henceforth to show true thankfulness to God in his whole life, and to walk uprightly before him, and also whether he hath laid aside unfinally all enmity, hatred, 
and envy, and doth firmly resolve henceforthward to walk in true love and peace with his neighbor. All those, then, who are thus disposed, God will certainly receive in mercy and count them worthy partakers of the table of his Son, Jesus Christ. On the contrary, those who do not feel this testimony in their hearts eat and drink judgment to themselves. Therefore, we also, according to the command of Christ and the Apostle Paul, admonish all those who are defiled with the following sins to keep themselves from the table of the Lord and declare to them that they have no part in the kingdom of Christ, such as all idolaters, all those who invoke deceased saints, angels, or other creatures, all those who worship images, all enchanters, diviners, charmers, and, all, and those who confide in such enchantments, all despisers of God and of His Word and of the holy sacraments, all blasphemers, all those who are given to raise discord, sex, and mutiny, mutiny in church of, of state or state, all perjured persons, all those who are disobedient to their parents and superiors, all murderers, continuous persons, and those who live in, in hatred and envy against their neighbors, all adulterers, whoremongers, drunkards, thieves, usurers, robbers, gamers, covetous, and all who lead offensive lives. All these, while they continue in such sins, shall abstain from this meat, which Christ hath ordained only for the faithful, lest their judgment and condemnation be made the heavier. But this is not designed, dear beloved brethren and sister in the Lord, to deject the contrite hearts of the faithful, as if none might come up to the supper of the Lord, but those who are without sin. For we do not come to this supper to testify thereby that we are perfect and righteous in ourselves. But on the contrary, considering that we seek our life out of ourselves in Christ Jesus, we acknowledge that we lie in the midst of death. Therefore, notwithstanding, we feel many infirmities and miseries in ourselves, as namely that we have not perfect faith, and that we do not give ourselves to serve God with zeal as we are bound, but have daily to strive with wickedness of our faith and the evil lusts of our flesh. Yet, since we are, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, sorry for this weakness, and earnestly desires to fight against our unbelief and to live according to all the commandments of God, therefore, we rest assured that no sin or infirmity which still remaineth against our will in us can hinder us from being received of God in mercy and from being made worthy partakers of this heavenly meat and drink. This far the reading of the form for the Lord's Supper that we will partake next week. Now we shall turn to the book of Hebrews to continue the exposition that we have been seeing in the book of Hebrews. This time, from chapter 1, verse 5, 
through chapter 2, verse 9. We'll see how we have a Savior greater than the angels. But before we begin, let's pray to the Lord once again and ask for His blessing. O Lord, our God, as we come before Thee, Lord, to hear Thy word, O Lord, unveil to us the overwhelming reality that we have a Savior greater than the angels. O Lord, we don't take these words lightly, but we take very dearly, Lord, that, that Thou art the most glorious God of all. And in the person of Jesus Christ, we can come before Thee. So, O Lord, show us today the glory of the Son, the one who is far greater than all creation, greater than us, greater than the angels, and who has conquered death in our place. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We began our exposition last time in the book of Hebrews, and we felt the overwhelming reality how he speaks so greatly of Jesus Christ, the person of the Son. The book of Hebrews is quite unique, as we saw. It's almost a sermon preaching from one text to the other, showing Christ's exaltation, how he's greater, how he's better, the most high of all. And the author now is going to elaborate what he has affirmed at the opening of the letter. The topic that we will address here specifically is the son's superiority to the angels. And he's going to make his case from Scripture to prove that there is no other like the son. The, the theme of the book of Hebrews could arguably be, don't be so easily impressed. Michael Kruger has said that. It's, this is one of the possible themes of the book. Don't be so easily impressed. Well, perhaps most of us nowadays are not really impressed by angels. We don't quite have the same view of angels nowadays that those people had in the early church. We are more impressed by other things nowadays. But what we are impressed by is not relevant at all. The point is that the author is, is saying that Christ is greater than anything else that we could be impressed by. Yes, he's greater than the angels. He's also greater by anything else that we could ever be impressed by. In the Old Testament times and during the early church, angels were a big deal. If we do a brief survey of the theme of angels throughout Scripture, you will encounter that angels were fearful creatures. I mean, they were glorious beings. They were fearful creatures. If you look at Ezekiel chapter 1, angels are frightening. We have there in Ezekiel chapter 1 an angel with four faces, four wings. Their appearance is, liking, is like burning coals of fire. A fearful vision. It's not the normal picture that we have of angels. Certainly not the 
cute depiction of angels that we see on Hollywood, or certainly not like a Cupid that we see during Valentine's Day. That's not the Bible image of angels. Angels are glorious creatures, frightening creatures even. They were so fearful that one of the first things that came out of their mouths when they met with someone was, Fear not. Fear not. Like when the angels met the shepherds in the field in Luke chapter 2. And the angels say unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. The very first thing when the angel appeared, fear not, because they are glorious creatures. Even though perhaps nowadays we take angels very lightly. And this implies that when angels encounter people, that was something astonishing, something to be remembered. Angels are glorious creatures. Perhaps even though we don't struggle with angels today, we are still chasing for other things. We still find other things impressive. We are still astonished by other things. Things that we think are more impressive than Jesus, perhaps. Well, this passage will show us that we should be more impressed by Jesus than anything else. We'll meditate on how Jesus' superiority to the angels urges us to not go back to any other form of revelation, for He is the only one who brings salvation. And to do so, we'll meditate on the three headings. First, who is the Son? Verses 5 to 14 of chapter 1. Second, what He demands? Verses 1 to 4 of chapter 2. And third, what he conquered, verses 5 to 9 of chapter 2. So first, let's consider who is the Son. We'll see in the first section five affirmations, five realities of who is the Son that explain why he's so superior than the angels and than anything else. First, Jesus is the enthroned King. Chapter 1, verse 5. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be unto him a father, and he shall be to me a son. He is the enthroned son king. And there is no other. The first claim that the altar makes connects back to Verse 4, that this is the one who is greater than the angels, who received a more excellent, excellent name than any other. He is the one, only one worthy to be called Son. He is the Son. Angels have been referred to as sons, sons of God, as we read in Job chapter 1, verse 6, but never as the Son. But this title belongs only to to Jesus Christ. He is the Son. And the author is here quoting from Psalm 2, verse 7. But what is he referring to as the Son being begotten? It's a strange word for us today, perhaps. The Son being begotten by the Father. It's not referring to His incarnation in His human nature. 
Genesis was quoted in Psalm 2, verse 7. This day have I begotten thee. No. This is mentioned in Psalm 2, quoted in Hebrews in another passage. It is referring to his exaltation. To the moment that the Son is exalted before all. The Son is both eternal begotten of the Father, His eternal Sonship, but also the moment of His exaltation. At how, by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ is declared the Son with power. We read that in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. And declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirits of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. So Jesus, by his resurrection, is then declared before all, before the whole world, look, this is the Son, the begotten of the Father, the Son, the King, with all power. So this is the moment that he is exalted before all, that all things are then placed under his feet. And the other verses are then going to unfold uh, what the author is speaking of, the Son's exaltation. Not the beginning of his sonship, but the beginning of his exaltation. The second quote of the verse, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, is from Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, in which the Lord promises to David an everlasting dynasty. He promised to David a kingdom that shall not be shaken, a king who will sit upon the throne, and the scepter shall never depart from him. And all the authors of the Hebrew is quoting and is saying, See, this is the one. No other king could fulfill this. But now, see, this is the one. This is the king that was promised. This is the one who sits on the throne once and for all. He is the enthroned Davidic king who rules forever. In second verse 6, we have that Jesus is worshipped. Verse 6, And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. Although the exact quotation of verse 6 is somewhat dis- disputed, is at least an allusion to Psalm 97, verse 7, which, is say, which says, Confounded be all they that serve graven images, that boast themselves of, of idols. Worship him, all ye gods. And the words for gods is Elohim, the same word that the Old Testament uses also to refer to angels. As we have in Psalm 8, verse 5. For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. Same word, Elohim. The point of this reference is simple. What was promised about the Lord, what was promised of the Lord, of Yahweh in the Old Testament, where this quote comes from, is now being fulfilled in the person of the Son. He is the one who is worthy to be worshipped. Well, to worship anyone else but God is idolatry. So what the 
author is saying here that worship is both God-centered and Christ-centered. Because He is God. And we worship Him. Jesus Christ, our God. He is the ruler who sits on the throne. And even the angelic creatures who are so glorious, as we saw, are now being called to worship Him. Although they are so glorious, although they are so powerful creatures, as they come before the throne of Christ, the only thing they can do is worship Him, is contemplate His glory and worship Him. I like how Sinclair Ferguson summaries this verse saying that the angels are worshiping creatures. Jesus is worshipped. That is the difference. Although the angels are so glorious, so powerful, they are yet worshiping creatures. But Jesus is worshipped. He is the only one who is worthy to be worshipped. No one else. Third, Jesus is the just ruler. He is the righteous ruler. Verses 7 to 9. The angels are said to be servants in their house, but Christ sits on the throne as king. The author is quoting him in verse 7 from Psalm 104, verse 4. A psalm that exalts the Lord as God Almighty, as the God creator of the universe. And before such an all-powerful God, angels are simply messengers. They are simply servants in the house, in the house of the Almighty God. They could never be worshipped. They are servants in the house, not the king of the house. On the other hand, verses 8 and 9 tells us that the Son does not serve, but He rules. These two verses, 8 and 9, are taken from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. The throne that is said to belong to the Lord in Psalm 45, the throne that belongs to the Lord God Almighty, is now ascribed to the Son. The author is quoting what was said of God and saying, it's the Son. The King that Psalm 45 spoke about is revealed now by the author to the Hebrews to be the Son, Jesus Christ, the God-man. And Jesus is anointed for ministry in the beginning of his ministry, Luke 4, 18. And then he's exalted as the king because of his righteousness. Jesus is exalted both by virtue of who he is as God, but also by virtue of what he has done as perfectly fulfilling the whole law of his righteousness, both by his deed and by who he is, both by his divinity and his humanity. Verse 8 is evoking Christ's divinity, and verse 9 is then evoking his humanity, and he is praised by both. The angels are neither God nor man, but Jesus Christ is both God and man. He's powerful enough to rule because he is God, and he's human, so he can relate to us 
in our suffering. The contrast of verses 7 and 9, 7 to 9, is that though the angels are very important, very high and powerful, they are just servants before the Son. He is the one who sits on the throne. Therefore, we don't bow to the servant, but we bow to the king, to the Son himself. Fourth, Jesus is the eternal creator, verses 10 to 12. The author now is quoting from Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27, affirming that the Son is greater because He is the creator of all things. He is eternal. He was there from the beginning, and He is the creator. All the rest, the angels... Ourselves are but creatures, finite creatures, temporal creatures, bound to time. Once again, a psalm that speaks about the Lord, about Yahweh, is here applied to the Son. A psalm that says that the Lord created the whole world is now being said that the Son did it, that He was there from the beginning. And this is the beauty of, of our Trinitarian theology. That what is true of one member of the Trinity is also true of the other. The Father is the Creator, so the Son is also the Creator, and the Holy Spirit is the Creator. And creation is here, in contrast to the Son, being compared to a garment. That with the passing of time grows older and older, Wears out, becomes no longer useful until it is rolled up and put away. The same picture that we have on the final day, as the throne of the Lord is placed before heaven and earth, and heavens are then rolled up, rolled back as a scroll. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Who shall be able to stand before so glorious throne? Even the heavens and the earth are not compared to him. The world and the angels, like ourselves, are creatures of time. Finite, changing over time. But the Son, Jesus Christ, is unchanging. He is never-ending. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Fifth, Jesus is minister to verses 13 and 14. The angels are ministers, ministering spirits, but the Son is minister to. The author now quotes from Psalm 110, verse 1. And this is one of the favorite psalms, we could say, of the author to the Hebrews. Because he will use this psalm over and over throughout the letter. He's overwhelmed by Christ's kingship as the anointed king, as we will see in other sections as well. The Son sits at the right hand of God. Jesus Christ fulfills the Old Testament promise from the Davidic line, the one who sits on the throne once and for all. And by contrast, verse 14, the angels are not rulers, but servants. On the house. They are not sitting on the throne giving orders, but they are being sent out to fulfill his order 
They're called ministering spirits because they don't rule, but they serve. Angels are ministers who carry out the will of God. And here it is specified that their service is directed towards humanity, towards us. Especially those who receive salvation. Sinclair Ferguson again brings an interesting thought. He said, can you imagine what it will be like in heaven if God were to invite us to a heavenly theater to watch our lives unfold before our eyes? We would see all the ways that God was ministering to us through his angels in ways that we could never have imagined. Can Can you imagine if we could see all the ways that the Lord has been ministering to us through his angels. They are glorious creatures, powerful creatures, and they are ministering to us. We came here to church, perhaps in unknown ways, because God has ministered to us through his angels. What a comfort to know that the Lord uses this Heavenly agents to keep us, to bring us unto salvation. They are glorious. They are so powerful. And the Lord uses them for our good. What a good news. We often are oblivious of the extraordinary that is happening around us. All the things that the Lord is doing through his angels even around us. But even the angels are ministering unto us, heirs of salvation. And since the Son is so much superior to the angels in all aspects, how could we be tempted to worship them? How could we be tempted to worship anything else but Jesus Christ, the Son? Or how could we even be tempted to return to a revelation given by angels when we have something given by the Son himself? And this connects us to our second point, what he demands from us. Now that we saw who he is, what he demands from us. In these verses, chapter 2, verse 1 to 4, the author gives an exhortation to all of us who come before who come before him and he is here applying all that he has said in chapter 1 all that he has explained he is now applying to us a message against drifting away therefore verse 1 since Jesus is the divine son who has spoken about greater than the angels therefore Verse 1, we ought to give the more, the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. The expression here, let them slip, is like a ship that is not anchored properly and then drifts away slowly, little by little, and goes away into the stormy sea until the waves crash the ship. 
the book of Hebrew, will make explicit that this drifting away is not simply a temporary fall into sin, but it is a rejection of the gospel. It is a complete rejection of the gospel. And the word in verse 3 for neglect is the same that appears in Matthew 22, verse 5, on the parable of the wedding banquet of the king's son wedding, where it says, Matthew 22, verse 4 and 5, Again he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen are, and my fetlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it. They neglected it. They made light of it. And went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. Those who stayed outside in that parable are the ones who are cast into the outer darkness. Those who are hopeless, those who are going to be destroyed. This is the, the gravity, the, the warning that has been given to us not to neglect so great salvation. Then the author starts making a comparison between the old and the new dispensation. Verses 2 and 3. Well, what does it mean that this old dispensation was mediated by angels? Well, it certainly doesn't mean that it wasn't reliable, that it wasn't true, or that it wasn't the covenant of grace already. It's because he's saying the word is spoken by angels was steadfast. It was firm. It was valid. It was true. It was reliable. But it was incomplete. It means that it was a covenant mediated by shadows. By things that are in themselves incomplete. They were not the final one as we saw last time. They were incomplete in themselves, shadows. And when Christ comes, and, and when what is complete comes, all that is incomplete ceases. It was nevertheless a reliable word. Because every transgression, verse 2, and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. The word was true and reliable, because those who broke it were punished. It, it was a reliable word. But nevertheless, incomplete. Word brought by angels, by priests, by ceremonies, by rituals, was provisory, was temporal. It was partial. But in these last days, God spoken through the Son, as we saw in the opening of chapter 1. The comparison being made is that if those who disobey the word delivered by angels were punished, how much more those who neglect the Son will be? How much more those who neglect the message being proclaimed by the Son today will be punished? The word ministered by the angels was true. But it was partial. 
and they were punished. How much more will we if we neglect such a message? In the Old Testament time, Israel was punished. They went to exile because they broke that word. But there will be a final exile from God from which there will be no escape, as the author says. The author gives in his verses three reasons why we should hold fast to this great salvation. It was spoken by the Lord. Second, it was credited by those who heard Jesus in his ministry. And third, verse 4, God himself bore witness of these through signs and wonders. Notice that in these verses and in the whole book of Hebrews, the author is speaking to Christians. The author is addressing his letter to Christians to tell them not to drift away. He's not assuming that all his audience is composed by faithful and true Christians. But he's warning them, don't drift away. He's warning them of the great danger of drifting away. And now let me speak directly to you, young men and young women. We're here today, especially those who are around college age. When you start making your own decisions and you make very important decisions around this time, you walk on your own feet, spread your wings, decide who to marry, what to do, what to work with, where to live. This is the age when you will make so many important decisions. Remember, Hold fast to this, to this faith. Hold fast to your faith. This is the, the most important decision. This is the age that so many drift away. Take heed. Hold fast. This is the most important decision. You go to college, and then one day you realized that though you came to church so many years, you were drifting away all those years. You were sitting at church, coming with your mom and dad, Sunday after Sunday, but in your heart, you were drifting away, little by little, inch by inch, you're drifting away. Take heed. Do not neglect this Call. Do not dis- neglect such a great salvation that is being presented to you today. Take heed. This is the reality of, a, of any backslider. Not only young men and women, but of any backslider. Little by little, inch by inch, sin starts to take place in our heart, to take over our heart. And we start to drift away until we find ourselves in the midst of the sea and the waves crash us and we go into the bottom of the sea. One time I remember that I had an encounter with a group of young people dressed up as Harry Potter characters. They were dressed up as these characters and they were playing their characters 
all happy and pretending to be those characters, filled with anxiety. And then later, a few days later, I thought, am I living my Christian life the same way that those kids are playing a character? Do I play the Christian as they play the Harry Potter? At the end of the day, do we come home from church and then we take off all the costumes that we put on? Are we here just playing the Christian? Do we come to church on Sundays to play a character? If our church, if our elders, if our God, and then on the week, we put yet another character before our friends. Are we playing a Christian religion? Do we come to do you you come to church thinking that in your innermost none of this is real? In your innermost, do you think that none of this is real? Just like a character, just like a movie. It's not real. Take heed. Take heed, brothers and sisters. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? You can fool your parents. You can fool your elders. You can fool the whole church. Perhaps you can even fool yourself. But you cannot fool God. He sees behind the character. He sees behind the mask. Take heed. So you don't drift away. Do not neglect so great salvation. And this this great salvation is only possible because of what Christ has conquered. As we will see in our next section, what he has conquered in our place. Verses 5 to 9 of chapter 2. This ties together all that the author has been saying. He said that, the, that Jesus is greater than the angels. And then he charged his hearers not to neglect this great salvation. And now he goes back to the comparison between Jesus and the angels. To drive home his last argument. How could we turn to angels if our path to glory was secured only through Jesus. How could we forsake the mediator who sits on the throne and is crowned with glory? In verse 5, the author says that the world to come will be subjected not to angels. And this world to come, this expression world to come is the same that he will use over and over throughout the book. This is the better kingdom that he will speak about in chapter 11, verse 16. This is the kingdom that cannot be shaken. Chapter 12, verse 21. This is the heavenly Jerusalem of chapter 12, 12, verse 22. This world to come was not put into submission to angels. But then, to whom was it put into submission? And the author doesn't give an immediate answer. 
Instead, he turns to another psalm, Psalm 8, verses 4 to 6, showing that although human, human beings are so small compared to the rest of creation, God has crowned them and has placed them over creation. Mankind is said to be the crown of creation and receive a place of authority over all the rest, angels included. But this begs the question, how are all things under mankind but, verse 8, but now we see not yet all things put under him? How is it possible? Psalm 8 is saying that all things are put under us and now we don't see it. Something happened in history, in the history of mankind, that the destiny of human beings was forever changed. Now many things are not under our dominion. Diseases are not under our dominion. Sin is not under our dominion. On the contrary, it says that we are under the bondage of sin. Death is certainly not under our dominion. You see the entering, the intervention of sin in the world changed and corrupt all that was meant for us. All that was prepared for us was then corrupt by when sin when entered the world. Verse 7 and 8, We were made for glory, but now we see not yet all things put under him. The first Adam failed. And our story should have ended, ended at that point. He failed. All that was meant for us is then lost. End of story. All the glory that God had intended for man was lost. And we could even read, So now we see not all things put under him. It's over. But then verse 9 comes. But. And this is a very important but. But we see Jesus. The first Adam failed. But the second Adam succeeded. But we see Jesus. And this is the first time in the book of Hebrews that we actually read the name of Jesus. Although we have been speaking of Jesus Christ all this time long, this is the first time that he actually says it out loud. But we see Jesus. This verse really transitions the author's argument to show that Jesus is the one who is greater than the angels. And there is no other way of salvation but through Him. Yes, we have sinned and lost all that was meant for us. But we see Jesus. Jesus was made for a little while, for a short time. Through his incarnation, he was made a little lower than the angels in order that he could represent us, his people. Dr. Ch Thomas Schreiner clarifies that every man here refers not to 
everyone without distinction. Instead, it refers to everyone without exception. And this will become clear in the next session that the author to the Hebrews speaks. And he died for everyone without exception, without distinction. He died for his people, but he's not bound to the Greek or to the Hebrew, not bound to the Greek or to the heathen, not to any class, not to the Dutch or to the Brazilian or to the American, he's not bound to race. He died for every man. He was made for a little while lower than the angels to suffer. And he suffered in order that to taste death for mankind. He had to come down from heaven, from the throne that he was sitting in heavens, to die on that cross. For you and for me, he had to come low to bring us high again. The same God that sat on the throne forever, in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, also had to be hanged on the cross. If Jesus is truly who the author to the Hebrews is speaking, if he is far greater than the angels, if he is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, if he is the God of the universe, what is the Son doing on a cross? How could it be that this one who is greater than the angels is hanged on a cross? What is Jesus doing there? He went there to taste death in our place. Next week, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. And that table is a reminder for us that our Lord and Savior, who is infinitely higher than the angels, came down from heaven, took the form of a man to die in our place, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for us. What a reminder we have in the Lord's Supper of what he has done for us. Every Lord's Supper, every Lord's Day even, ought to be a reminder for us of what he has done, of what he has conquered for us. As Pastor Andrew Wilson said, We remember our sin and forget God's promises. God remembers His promises and forgets our sins. And today the bread and the cup speaks to us. Remember, He forgets. What a beautiful illustration we have in the Lord's Supper. A call to remember. He forgets. Our sins. What a great salvation we have in Jesus. The cup and the bread of the Lord's Supper ought to remind us what He has conquered. Remember, He forgets. 
He invites us to approach the table because through Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness for our sins. By the grace of God, Christ has tasted death in our place. And as we prepare for the Lord's Supper next week, I invite you to examine yourself. Ask yourself, where is your trust lying on? What are you impressed by? The table is an invitation for those who know that they were lost in their sins, but have deposited all their trust in Jesus. Now for them, there is no condemnation and no hindrance to approach the table, as we read in the form. For Jesus has paid it all. He has conquered death. But if you are here today, and you are still impressed by other things, more than Jesus, and have not cast yourself upon Him, use the Lord's Supper as a moment of reflection that your sins have consequences, one way or the other. Either Jesus Christ will taste death in your place, or you yourself, on the last day, will bear the iniquities, will bear the curse of death yourself. We began by saying how angels are impressive creatures. But if angels are higher than us, and the sun is higher than the angels, have you thought about how glorious is your Savior? Yes, the angels are impressive, but Jesus is higher than the angels. And even though the angels are more powerful than us, more glorious than us, and yet, these angels never had the Lord Jesus come and die for them. What a privilege we have. And this is the great question of Psalm 8, isn't it? How could... A great God, remember a small man like you and me. Sadly, the irony of our days. It's not that God forgets men, but that man forgets God. A friend of mine once visited Harvard University. And he took the chance to evangelize on that campus. Until he found a building with a saying engraved on it. And he would stop people by that building who were passing by. And ask if they knew from where came those words which were written in the building. Some said, perhaps a German or a Greek philosopher. Others say simply, I don't know. No idea. But engraved in stone on the outside of the Emerson Hall, which houses Harvard's, Harvard's Department of Philosophy, ironically, is written, What is man that thou art mindful of him? What an irony that the psalm that is spoke 
that God is so great and we are so little. And how could this God ever remember us? It's nowadays forgotten by many. Many nowadays are neglecting this great salvation, even though it is engraved in big letters before us. Look how great He is. I hope that we don't leave this church today uh, at those who walk by the Emerson Hall, oblivious to who God is and what He has done through the Son. Because even the angelic creatures were glorious creatures before the glory and exaltation that is given to the Son are brought to all in wonder before Him. Their only answer is to worship the Son, the God-man. Let us pre- prepare, therefore, for the day that we will join the angels before the throne. For the day is coming that we will rejoice with Him forever and ever. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart? Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, My God, how great thou art. Like manner, just as we will partake of the Lord's Supper next week, remember in preparation of that table, for that table, that we will partake of it new in the kingdom of heaven. We will taste of it new in the world to come. One day, that table will be surrounded by angels and the saints of all ages. And most important of all, we'll be sat in the presence of the Son Himself. And we will take of it new. And there, finally, we shall proclaim with the host of heaven, My God, how great Thou art, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's come now before the Lord and pray to Him. Let's pray. O God, our Lord, how great Thou art. O Lord, we come in awe and wonder before Thee, Lord. O Lord, how great Thou art. And how small we are, finite creatures. And yet, Lord, Thou hast remembered us. Thou hast not left us to our sins But Jesus Christ, the God-man, was made man to die in our place, to taste death for us. Oh, Lord, what a great salvation. Lord, impress this reality in our eyeballs to see how great is Jesus. All the rest is but creatures before thee, Lord. 
And as we go out today, may we take heed of this great salvation that is presented before us. And O Lord, may thy name be proclaimed in all the world. For the day shall come that the saints in this church will join the hosts of heaven to sing forever, How great thou art, O Lord. Prepare us, Lord, for that day. To not drift away, but to take heed and to be ever and ever impressed by the Son, our Savior, who is greater than the angels. And it is in the name of Jesus, our Savior, that we pray. Amen.